Hi, my name is Luna. Welcome to another episode of Your Mom's Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about two things, and they're both completely different subjects, but I think both will be interesting. One is a little more sinister and dark than the other, although they're both troubling as far as statistics, and then, well, the other you'll you'll hear in a minute. Anyway, I am apologizing for not uploading this yesterday. Life gets in the way sometimes. My son, who I think I talked about before, I was concerned about his ears. On Wednesday, I took him to um, a pediatric walk-in because he, you know, he's been pulling on his ears specifically, the, the left one more than the right. And I noticed that it was getting a little worse and I thought it was nothing, but I would feel bad if I didn't get it checked out. So I took him in and the doctor was like, oh, you know, it looks a little red. He looks like the start of an outer ear infection, which isn't serious as long as it's treated. So we gave him eardrops for a few days and he hated them, by the way. I don't know if you've ever tried to put eardrops in a baby's ear. Uh, I'm assuming it's not any more fun than it is doing it with a toddler, which he's almost a toddler, but he hated it. And so I don't know if... Um, the, the thing with the eardrops, if they weren't staying in long enough or whatever, they weren't getting where they needed to go. If that was the reason why his ear got worse, uh, yesterday, but I noticed that when I would, you can't tell a 10 month old baby, Hey, you have to lay on your, on your side for a minute, let the, the drops do their thing and then turn your head the other way. You can't tell them to do that. All they do is scream they don't know what you're saying. All they know is you're putting something in their ears. They don't like it and they wanted to stop. So I thought I was doing an okay job. And since I was told it wasn't bad, I was like, okay. And you know, they tell you to put in four drops. Really two is sufficient. So you, they have you put in a little more than what you need because they know that it's going to be hard to do. Just like there's a, um, a vaccine for rotavirus and it's an oral vaccine and there's more in the tube than what they actually need because most of it, they spit it out. So they plan these things for kids. But anyway, the drops obviously didn't work. He was pulling on his ear even more. And something told me, I wasn't sure if it was mommy instinct or if it was paranoia because I have a little bit of both when it comes to kids. So I thought, well, I'll take him to, to the ER. We live right down the street from the hospital. And... um thing is I took him outside to the car and oh my gosh yesterday we had a ton of snow first of all then there was blowing snow everywhere and it was the wind was blowing really hard and of course that's terrible right you don't want cold cold air air, sorry (laughs) cold air hitting your ears um tripping over my words cold air going into your ears doesn't feel good anyway right so if your ears bothering you so I had to like put a hat on him I put a hood over him and I just basically covered his head uh got into the hospital had to like I put him inside my put my coat over him right and tried to like cover him as much as I could because it's not a really long walk from the parking lot to the the emergency department doors but it felt like I walked a mile the wind was blowing so freaking hard but anyway I got him there and the doctor took a little while. So we were sitting there. I gave him a bottle. He fell asleep on me. And when the doctor came in, he 
asked me which ear was the the bad one. And I said the left. So he went to look. And the, the second he touched his ear, he woke up and screamed. So poor little guy. Um, he So he looked at his ear and he immediately was like, yeah. Because I had noticed some white stuff. It looked like pus. And the second he looked, he goes, oh, yeah, he's he's got a middle ear infection. So it spread. And that freaked me out because... Like I said, when my husband was a baby, I mean, like a really tiny baby, he had not been on this earth very long. He had a serious ear infection and he developed meningitis and he almost didn't make it. So I know that more than likely everything will be fine, but it's like because of that, I'm so worried about ear infections, right? So anyway... I was like, I'm, I don't, uh, the eardrops won't help a middle, a middle ear infection anyway. So thank God we don't have to use those anymore. Uh, so he was like, we're going to prescribe oral antibiotics. So he's got that again, um, bubblegum flavored stuff. He likes it. He doesn't put up a fight. So that is helpful, uh, much easier than with the eardrops. So he seems a little better today. He actually slept last night pretty well. And we got a new bed for him since we're doing the floor bed. We're not doing the crib and I sleep in there with him. So we're, since we're co-sleeping, I got a foam mattress to put on the floor and I got a queen. I was going to get a full size, but I was like, I'll go ahead and get a queen because more comfortable. It's a little bigger than a full size, not by much. Right. So it's not like I got like a king. That would have been a little, a little too much. But it'll be nice to have that in there. So we just laid that out, getting it ready. And I think it'll be awesome because it's um, it expands to six inches. But even if it doesn't fully expand, it'll be fine because I want something really low to the ground. And then this way, if he rolls off, it won't be an issue. It'll be like nothing, right? I'm trying to make his room. I don't know if you've heard of Montessori, their style of like uh, toys, like their educational stuff. And then as far as like making a room, you know, you want their, a, the ch- a child to be able to explore their room. It's theirs, right? So you want them to be able to explore freely without them getting hurt and without you having to be in there going, don't touch this, don't touch that. I'll oh, be careful with this. So I'm trying to make it as, as kid friendly as I can to where he would actually be almost completely safe by himself Uh, Of course, I'm not going to just throw him in there and just take off, (laughs) but I would like for him to be able to explore without me saying no constantly. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing. And he's getting better. Hopefully by, you know, Wednesday or whatever, uh, he'll be almost 100 percent. And then I guess I'll follow up, make sure that the ear infection clears up in seven days and I really hope it does because I really don't want him to have to be on antibiotics all the time and feeling so bad. It's it's really sad to see them suffer. So he doesn't understand what's going on, obviously. And he just it's just so sad. Anyway, let's uh, let's shift gears here. And what I'm going to talk about first, I kind of touched on it a, a little bit. I had talked about how people have children that are picky eaters, which is very common, but it's good. That's why it's good to expose them to a lot of different types of food. Once they start eating solids, try to give them a little bit of what you're eating. Uh, try to try to give them a big range of things to try that way. And don't give up, by the way, after the first time. If you give them something and they don't like it, 
try a few more times and they may genuinely hate it and that's fine. Don't force them, but try maybe, you know, three times or so to, to see, because sometimes they might not like it in the beginning and then they end up liking it because I know my son was like that with a few things. And if you give them healthy food, then you won't have such a a picky eater. What happens is a lot of people, like I said, out of convenience, will give their kid convenience foods like fast food, um, a lot of prepackaged stuff, processed stuff that isn't good for them. And so then when you actually go to give them veggies and fruit and stuff like that, they don't want it. You know, and that's not good because that's the best thing for them. Obviously, they're growing, right? They need to have healthy choices. And fast food obviously is the worst thing for a child. It's not good for adults either. I'm not going to lie. I do have a weakness sometimes and whatever. But I'm an adult and that's my choice. I don't always make the best choices. I'm also not going to be like, do as I say, not as I do. So I'm not going (laughs) to... So I'm not going to eat it in front of him and be like, but you can't have it because I, I want to set a good example. So if I eat fast food, I'll make sure that he doesn't see it or I will try to eliminate it completely. But that's not going to happen right now. I'm working towards it anyway. Uh, so what we're going to talk about is childhood obesity. Uh, we're going to talk about symptoms and causes and also associated uh, diseases, right? Because there's a lot of things that are correlated. So. If you have a child that is overweight, you need to be thinking to yourself or asking yourself why, because it could be something within their, their body, something that's making them gain weight or not be able to lose weight easily, right? It could be their diet, which most often it is their diet and lack of exercise and, um, There's some other factors, like I just said, so family factors. If your child comes from a family of overweight people, then they're more likely to put on weight easily. And it's especially true when you have them in an environment where high calorie foods are always available and physical activity is not encouraged. If you don't encourage them to get outside, uh, even if they're in the house, they can still be active. They don't have to go outside. I know when the weather's bad, Sometimes they can't get out, but chase them around, play with them, have them be active. There's all kinds of things you can do with your kids to, to keep them for, don't let them just sit all the time. It's not good for anybody to just sit. It can actually be detrimental to your health. It can increase your chance of cardiovascular issues. So make sure that they're being active and, um, sometimes there are also psychological factors. So personal, uh, family stress, uh, it can increase their, their risk of obesity. Some children, just like adults, will overeat to cope with their problems and to deal with their emotions like stress or even like boredom. How many times have you eaten because you're bored? You weren't actually hungry, but you catch yourself looking in the pantry, looking in the fridge, trying to find something to eat just because you don't have anything to do. And they normally, it says they're sim. I, I was reading this. Their parents might have a similar problem, might have the same tendencies, and that's where they learn it from. So be careful with your habits. Your kids watch everything. They see everything. They hear everything. So I have to, I'm, I know I have slipped up many times. And now that he's really, he's almost a year old, 
he's going to continue to get older. Obviously, he's going to notice everything. And I have I catch myself and I'm like, okay, I can't do that. I can't say that. And it's hard, but it'll be these things will become habit. And then you'll I'm sure I'll get the hang of it. I still say words around him that I shouldn't say. My husband and I both do. And, you know, I have to be really careful because I have the habit of even just in casual conversation. Not I'm not mad, but I'm like, oh, fuck this, fuck that. You can't. I mean, I know he's going to hear it. He's going to hear it in movies, TV. Uh, well, not TV, normal TV. Uh, he's going to hear it uh, out in the real world. You know, outside of the house, he's going to hear people say it. But I don't want him to think that it's a normal thing for him to say all the time because I don't want to encourage a child to be saying things like that, obviously. So let's go back to risk factors for childhood obesity. So socioeconomic factors also. Um, I'm just reading this actually from Mayo Clinic. And it says people in some communities have limited resources and limited access to supermarkets. As a result, they might buy convenience foods that don't don't spoil quickly, such as, oh, here, such as frozen meals, crackers, and cookies. So convenience foods that don't spoil quickly. Frozen meals, TV dinners, um, crackers, cookies. I'm trying to limit cookies. Also, people who live in lower-income neighborhoods might not have access to a safe place to exercise. Some people can't go outside if they live in an unsafe neighborhood. They don't want their kids running around outside because there's a lot of dangers. Even in what is considered a safe neighborhood, it's scary these days with so many people kidnapping children. There's there's trafficking, all kinds of things going on. So, you know, but it is true that in in more dangerous neighborhoods, they, they are less likely to have a safe place to go out and exercise. So that's that can often result in childhood obesity um certain medications some drugs prescription drugs that increase the risk of developing obesity are like prednisone which is a steroid uh, lithium amitriptyline paroxetine which is known as paxil gabapentin uh, which is also known as neurontin and horizont horizont i think is what it's called and propranolol which is sometimes used for anxiety or for blood pressure so enderol and hemangiol some of these medications can definitely contribute to um, obesity, can make it more difficult to lose weight. So keep an eye on that, too. If your kids are on whatever medications they're on, if you notice they're having an issue with their weight, make sure that you speak with their doctor about that and see if maybe that's the issue and if there's something similar that they can switch to. Um, there's a lot of complications that result from that come from childhood obesity Um And it says here, childhood obesity often causes complications in a child's physical, social, and emotional well-being. Um, We already know that, right? It's the same for adults. But like I said, if you can prevent this when they're a child, then they won't have to suffer these problems as they age, right? Physical complications of childhood obesity. So some of these are, as most people know, type 2 diabetes, It's not, it's different in the way that when people have type one, they're born with it. Type two is acquired. It's not something that you're born with. It's a chronic condition. Uh, It affects the way your, your child's body uses sugar, which is glucose, Uh, obesity and a sedentary lifestyle increase the risk of type two diabetes. So again, definitely exercise 
Exercise, exercise. I cannot stress that enough. Most important with children. A lot of children, you don't have an issue because they love to run around and act crazy, right? So, but if you have a child that gets bored and wants to sit there and watch TV and they want to play video games, they want to sit on their computer just or their tablet, you got to get them up and going. You got to limit their time, give them a set amount of time that they're able to do those things, but the rest of the time they're not doing something else like eating or, you know, bathing or doing homework, whatever. Make sure that they are active. Get involved with them so that you can both be healthy. Uh, high cholesterol and high blood pressure. The, a lot of these people, you, you just know that they're going to have issues with this because you know that maybe you have some of these issues. You know, have a, you have a family member that has these issues as a result of being overweight. High cholesterol and high blood pressure, two very dangerous things. So having a poor diet can obviously cause them to have one of those conditions. And also with, let's talk about, so high cholesterol, right? What it does is it, there's a buildup of plaque in the arteries. And when that happens, the arteries narrow and they harden. And that can cause, you know, a a heart attack. It can cause a stroke later in life. And like I said before, there are some children that have had heart attacks. So hopefully that's not something that you have to have, that you have to deal with because not only is it sad for an adult to have a heart attack or a stroke, but it's a million times sadder for a child because this is totally preventable and it is our responsibility as parents to make sure that they don't have those kind of complications. Um, It's completely unnecessary. Joint pain, uh, joint pain. Obviously, there's extra weight that causes stress on on your joints, like your hips and your knees. And sometimes the, they can have pain, and they can actually have injuries uh, to their hips, their knees, and their back because of the excess weight that they're carrying around. So that's something to look out for. Breathing issues for because of the extra weight. Asthma is more common in children that are overweight. And they're more likely to develop things like obstructive sleep apnea where they quit breathing in their sleep. And it's it's dangerous because it's potentially fatal. It can kill adults. It can kill children. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So basically what this is, it usually there's no symptoms. Um, it causes fatty deposits to build up in the liver. And then it can also lead to scarring and liver damage. So this is really serious. Like I said, there's usually no symptoms. So that's dangerous. A lot of times people don't know that they have fatty liver disease until they have like routine blood work. So I know that I had blood work done. My husband had blood work done. And our liver enzymes... Actually, I think his, they were a little elevated. And so my doctor was like, just watch out for, you know, they, they'll tell you what you should avoid as far as your diet, increase your exercise because you could potentially develop fatty liver disease. But if you are having yearly blood work done, have a yearly physical, you can stay on top of this and then it doesn't have to become an issue. Keep your cholesterol down and that will also help. Definitely definitely get checked out every year because there are so many things that won't be you won't have symptoms and you'll only have these things detected if you have routine blood work done every year so very important children should do it too 
Don't wait until they get older. They should always have an annual physical. Okay, so as far as there's also uh, social and emotional complications, children who have obesity, so they may, it's very likely that they'll experience teasing or bullying by their peers. And I know that I've seen it happen. I'm sure a lot of you, if not all of you, have seen it happen. And the thing is, is that it really damages their self-esteem. And so then they're at more risk for depression and anxiety. Um, to help them with, uh, we discussed this earlier, I discussed this earlier, <laughs> to help prevent their, their this uh, excessive weight gain and the things you probably need to look at, right? Like I said, set a good example. Make healthy eating and physical activity, regular physical activity, a family thing. Go out and do things with them. Go for a walk every day. And that will definitely help. As long as you're getting, you can do a 30-minute walk every night if the weather permits. Everybody can do that. And I could do that. And in fact, I probably should. But like I said, just if it's just a walk, get everybody involved. Go out. And if you do it as a family, then everyone benefits and nobody feels singled out. You don't have to make somebody feel. I think a lot of times when a parent says to a child, you need to exercise, it might make them feel singled out and like, oh, I'm fat. It might help. It might hurt their self-esteem. So if you get involved and say we all should be healthy, it makes them not feel singled out. And I think that's probably a good way to go. Have healthy snacks available. Uh, air popped popcorn is good without butter. <laughs> Don't add any salt to it. Fruit with low fat yogurt, baby carrots and hummus, uh, whole grain cereal, and use like low fat milk with that. There's lots of things that you can have on hand that won't um, cause them to gain weight. Offer new foods multiple times. Like I said, don't be discouraged if they don't immediately like a new food. It usually takes a few times before they like it. Choose non-food rewards. Promising candy for good behavior is terrible. You can always come up with another reward system, right? So if it's more video game time, more computer time, more TV time, I like I said, I, I'm not trying to encourage sedentary activities, but if you can kind of, I'm not saying just unlimited use, but instead of giving them an hour with their tablet, give them an hour and a half or whatever. It's up to you, right? There's lots of things you can do. Lots of things. Or if you want to say, hey, uh, I'll buy you something that they've been wanting, not something super expensive. You can't, every time you want them to do something, you can't be like, hey, I'm going to get you an Xbox. (laughs) But something small, just a little reward. But candy, cookies, and stuff like that, don't do that. Be sure they get enough sleep because they're likely to overeat if they're not sleeping enough. And this is true for everyone. The less sleep you get, the more you're going to eat. So make sure that they're sleeping as much as they need to. Make sure you're sleeping as much as you need to because sleep deprivation causes hormonal imbalances and then you get more hungry and then uh, obviously you're going to eat more. So keep an eye on that too. Like I said, make sure they see their doctor for well child checkups at least once a year. They will check their height and weight, calculate their BMI and the thing is, so there's a significant increase 
in your child's BMI percentile rank over uh, one year, if that's the case, it could be a possible sign that your child's at risk of becoming overweight. So again, a significant increase in your child's BMI percentile rank over one year may be a possible sign that your child is at risk of becoming overweight. Said it correctly that time. So the thing with this, though, I just want to point out the BMI, body mass index. So there are people that are highly athletic, have a lot of muscle, and if they go strictly by their BMI, it says that they're obese. This is true for a lot of hockey players, football players, maybe even some basketball players, soccer players, I'm not sure, but people that tend to have a lot of muscle, they're bigger, their BMI will tell them that they are obese because it doesn't take into account muscle and muscle obviously weighs more than fat. It just goes by your height and your weight. So if you are concerned because you're looking at your BMI and it's telling you you're you're obese, you also need to do the body fat percentage because that will tell you, you know, hey, BMI is saying you're obese, you're really not. So don't just solely rely on your BMI because that's going to discourage so many people. Uh, I think I think I've touched on everything I wanted to touch on with that. And the thing is, I'm just going to go through a few statistics. The thing is, this is a problem everywhere. Unfortunately, it's a huge problem in the U.S., And I am going to just go over some statistics for childhood obesity in the U.S. because it's such a problem. Like, I'm, (laughs) it's unbelievable. And, you know, the U.S., it's not just children, adults. I think it's something like half of the country is obese. And that is just nuts. So, for children, let's go over some of these. For children and adolescents aged 2 to 19, The prevalence of obesity was 19.3% and affected about 14.4 million children and adolescents. Obesity prevalence was 13.4% among 2 to 5-year-olds, 20.3% among 6 to 11-year-olds, and 21.2% among 12 to 19-year-olds. It's also more common among certain populations. Um, Obesity prevalence was 25.6% among Hispanic children, 24.2% among non-Hispanic black children, 16.1% among non-Hispanic white children, and then 8.7% among non-Hispanic Asian children. So that, obviously, there's there's, um, more of a prevalence in what, I hate the word minority, but you know what I mean? So non-white children tend to be more obese and that probably goes back to some of the socioeconomic factors that I was talking about earlier so obesity and so it's the next one obesity and socioeconomic status in 2011 to 2014 among children and adolescents aged 2 to 19 years the prevalence of obesity decreased as the head of household's level of education increased Obesity prevalence was 18.9% among children and adolescents aged 2 to 19 years in the lowest income group. 
19.9% among those in the middle income group and 10.9% among those in the highest income group. So there is some correlation between high income, lower obesity rates, low income, higher obesity rates. Um, obesity prevalence was lower in the highest income group among non-Hispanic Asian boys and Hispanic boys. Obesity prevalence was lower in the highest income group among non-Hispanic white girls, non-Hispanic Asian girls, and Hispanic girls. Obesity prevalence did not differ by income among non-Hispanic black girls. Women, infants, and children. Um, Sorry, I just had to click on something. (laughs) So obesity affects children from families with low incomes more than children from families with higher incomes, like we said. Children and families with low incomes are often served by the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, which is known as WIC. This is a thing in the U.S. where if you have low income, you're able to get food, you're able to get, I think they give you diapers, formula. I'm not sure what else. I had a friend that was actually on it and it's very helpful. I'm not sure if they have something like that similar in Canada, but I do know that the the, the WIC program, it promotes healthy eating and nutrition education for infants and children up to age five. And then for women with low incomes who are pregnant, postpartum or breastfeeding. Uh, nutrition during pregnancy and early childhood is critical for healthy child growth and development. To be eligible for WIC, women, infants, and children must meet residential income and nutrition risk requirements. So they have a few requirements for you to be able to qualify. It shows, so the CDC and USDA analyzed WIC data from 56 U.S. states and territories between 2010 and 2018. During that time, 31 WIC agencies reported significant declines in obesity among children aged 2 to 4. The prevalence of obesity reported in 2018 ranged from 8.5% to 20.2%. That's a big, big range there. Other findings included... Obesity went down by more than 3% in New Jersey, Utah, Virginia, Guam, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, and Puerto Rico. Obesity went up significantly in Alabama, Hawaii, New Hampshire, North Carolina, West Virginia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. National trends in obesity among young children enrolled in WIC. So there's a few more statistics here for you. National BC trends from 2010 to 2018 among children aged 2 to 4 from families enrolled in WIC showed the following. In 2018, 14.4% of WIC participants aged 2 to 4 years had obesity, and that was a drop from 15.9% in 2010. The prevalence of overweight and obesity combined went down from 32.5% in 2010 to 29.7% in 2018. The largest drops were among four-year-olds, boys and children who were Asian or Pacific Islander, and the prevalence of obesity in 2018 was higher among children who were Hispanic, 17.2%, non, uh, what is it, and American Indian or at least Alaska Native, 18.8%, then among those who were non-Hispanic white, 12.4%, non-Hispanic black, 
11.8% or Asian or Pacific Islander, 10.4%. So WIC is great because of the nutritional programs that they provide. And it's very important because the people that are on WIC are lower income. And we talked about the socioeconomic status affecting nutrition and the cause. It's often the cause of obesity in a lot of children. So I think that uh, programs like WIC are very important. And I hope that every country can adopt something similar if they don't already have it because it's very, very, it's one of the most important things for children because I cannot stress enough how many children are currently uh, suffering through diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, having heart attacks, having strokes. And when you hear about, I read something the other day about an eight-year-old girl having a stroke. And this was in the U.S. And it wasn't, it was related to obesity. So these are things that you can completely prevent 100%. Whether it's a nutritional issue, it's an economic issue, it's a mental health issue, or something else, you have to, medication, right? You have to be on top of your child's health. You have to work with their pediatrician to make sure that no matter what the cause, you are able to fix it, uh, prevent it. That is the most important thing. You definitely want to prevent it. But if it's already an issue, you need to get on it right now to keep them from developing developing significant problems that are going to impact them as adults and possibly be fatal. I've talked about this a lot. I know that I could sit here all day long until I'm blue in the face and tell people, don't feed your children this, don't feed them that, make them exercise, da, 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 da. But you can't make people do things. These are just recommendations. And if you love your kids, please do everything you can to make sure that they live a long, healthy life because you want them to grow up and have a a good education, a good career, family, whatever makes them happy. You want them to be able to experience a full life and not be sick. So what I'm going to switch over to now, (laughs) I'm going to switch over to serial killers. And I know that's a big, that's completely different. It's something that's always interested me. True crime has always been a thing that I've, it's been since I was little, actually. I started getting interested in true crime when I think I was in about fifth grade, to be honest. It worried my mom. I don't know if she thought that me reading about serial killers meant that I wanted to be one. Uh, Obviously, I did not end up being a serial killer, although you would not know, right? I'm not going to tell you. No. Uh, My mom was very concerned in the beginning. She was also concerned, though, later on when I took a criminal justice class as an elective in high school, and I did a report on Charles Manson, and I wrote a letter to him, and I was going to mail it, and she got so upset because she (laughs) was like, if he's going to have our address, and if he gets out, he's going to kill us, and she really, first of all, she believed he was going to get out of prison at some point, And second, she really believed that he would come after me. Like, 
out of all the people that send him mail, he's going to specifically come to get me or send one of the Manson family to come get us. Anyway, she had concerns. I understand, but I never did had any of the behaviors that I'm going to discuss. So that right there should have made her feel a little better, but she may not have known what to look out for. So I'm going to kind of tell you a few things to look out for. And it is a serious topic. Some I, I may sound like I'm joking, you know, making light of it, but it is very serious. And it's definitely something to be concerned about if you notice any of these behaviors and just make sure that if you do that you speak with the family doctor first and then they can refer you whether it's going to be to a therapist a psychiatrist whatever or some kind of program that they think your kids should be involved in just make sure you you watch your kids it's the same with the overeating you have to be involved you have to communicate with them you have to love them these are the things kids that are neglected kids that are not told they are loved that they're not touched ever they're not hugged they can develop some pretty serious emotional issues that could really be bad like for example they could be a serial killer so there's something called the mcdonald triad and i'm looking it's on the healthline website and the title is, Can the McDonald Triad Predict Serial Killers? So there's, so we'll start with the three signs, the three most common signs. And it says, the McDonald triad, triad refers to the idea that there are three signs that can indicate whether someone will grow up to be a serial killer or other kind of violent criminal. So equally serious. One, being cruel or abusive to animals, especially pets. So family pets. Usually when there's a family pet, there's a certain attachment, a certain bond. So if they're cruel to a pet, that's an even bigger red flag. Setting fire to objects or otherwise committing minor acts of arson. You know, kids are curious about things. They'll be curious about fire that matches lighters. They're going to be curious. But if they start setting fire to things constantly when they know they're not supposed to, they know right from wrong, that's a, a red flag too. Regularly wetting the bed. Now, obviously, that's going to happen occasionally after they're potty trained. The kids are going to have accidents. And it can happen until they're, you know, a lot older. Sometimes it it just happens. Uh, it happened to me as an adult because I had a dream that I was in the bathroom peeing and I woke up and, uh, nope, I was peeing in the bed. But regularly wetting the bed. So if it is a common, it's happening all the time, especially if they are potty trained and they go a while without having an accident and all of a sudden it starts happening a lot, there's usually something wrong. So the McDonald triad. So it first gained the idea first gained momentum when researcher and psychiatrist J.M. McDonald published a controversial review in 1963 of earlier studies that suggested a link between these childhood behaviors and a tendency toward violence in adulthood. It also says our understanding of human behavior and its link to our psychology has come a long way since then. Plenty of people can exhibit these behaviors in childhood and not grow up to be serial killers. But like I said, there's usually some kind of something going on, some kind of mental health issue, some kind of disorder. So these three are singled out. And the question is why? Why are these three behaviors singled out? So animal cruelty. 
McDonald believed cruelty to animals stem from children being humiliated by others for extended periods of time. And this was especially true of abuse by older or authoritative adults who the children couldn't retaliate against. So they would lash out against helpless animals. Children, like I said, instead, they act out their frustration on animals to vent their anger on something weaker and more defenseless. And apparently it allows them to feel a sense of control over their environment because they're not powerful enough to take violent action against the adult who may be causing them harm or humiliation. That's why this is something you've got to look out for. Fire setting. McDonald suggested that setting fires may be used as a way for children to vent feelings of aggression and helplessness brought on by humiliation from adults who they feel they have no control over. So same situation. It's often thought to be one of the earliest signs of violent behavior in adulthood. Fire setting doesn't directly involve a living creature, but it can also provide or it can still provide a visible consequence that satisfies the unresolved feelings of aggression. So these are just ways to lash out because they can't inflict this anger on the, uh, the adult that is causing these feelings. Bedwetting, also known as enuresis. Bedwetting that continues after five years old for a number of months was thought by McDonald to be linked to the same feelings of humiliation that could bring on the other triad behaviors of animal cruelty and fire setting. Bedwetting is part of a cycle that may exacerbate feelings of humiliation when the child feels they're in trouble uh, for or embarrassed um, in trouble for or embarrassed by wetting the bed. So uh, the child may feel more and more anxious and helpless as they continue this behavior, it can contribute to them wetting the bed more often. It's also, so it's most often linked to stress or anxiety. So a lot of times when something, there's a something new, a big change in their life or any kind of abuse, it, something is bothering them. It can lead to bedwetting. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that alone they could be a violent adult or be a serial killer. That's just when it's linked to the other two, that's why they call this the triad, right? When it all three are present, then you have a higher likelihood of them becoming a violent adult or serial killer. Now, so the question now is, is the McDonald triad accurate? And it says it's worth noting that McDonald himself didn't believe that his research found any definitive link between these behaviors and adult violence. But it hasn't stopped researchers from seeking to validate a connection between the McDonald triad and violent behavior. Extensive research has been done to test and validate whether McDonald's McDonald's claims that these behaviors could predict violent behavior in adulthood. Um, So they're basically checking to see if there's any merit to these claims, right? So they tested the findings. The research duo of psychiatrist Daniel Hellman and Nathan Blackman published a study looking closer at McDonald's claims. And this is in 1966. It consisted of 88 people that were convicted of violent acts of murder, violent acts or murder, and claimed to have found similar results. This seemed to corroborate McDonald's findings. But Hellman and Blackman only found the full triad in 31 of them. The other 57 only fulfilled the triad in part. The authors suggested that abuse, rejection, or neglect by parents may also have played a role, but they didn't look too deeply at that. There's something called the social learning theory, 
Uh, and a study in 2003 looked closely at patterns of animal cruelty behavior in the childhoods of five people later convicted of serial murder in adulthood. The researchers applied a psychological research technique known as social learning theory. And it's the idea that behaviors can be learned by imitation or modeling on other behaviors. The study suggested that cruelty to animals in childhood could lay the foundation for a child to graduate to being cruel or violent toward other people in adulthood. And that's called the graduation hypothesis. The study's uh, result is based on the very limited data of only five subjects. So it says it's wise to take its findings with a grain of salt, but there are other studies that seem to have corroborated its findings. There's the repeated violence theory. A 2004 study found an even stronger predictor of violent behavior related to animal cruelty. If the subject has a history of repeated violent behavior toward animals, they may be more likely to commit violence toward humans. The study also suggested that having siblings could increase the chance that repeated animal cruelty could escalate into violence against other people. It says a more modern approach. A 2018 review of decades of literature on the McDonald triad turned this theory on its head. The researchers found that few people convicted of violent crimes had one or any combination of the triad. Researchers suggested that the triad was more reliable as a tool to indicate that the child had a dysfunctional home environment. So this is this is where we I need to stop here for a second. So these three things that you're supposed to be looking for, as I have studied individually, most serial killers they had some they displayed some of these behaviors and it's important to point out that like i said before just because they're displaying these behaviors doesn't mean they're going to be a killer but there's likely some kind of dysfunction in their home that needs to be corrected whether that child needs to go to therapy whether they need to be taken from their home and placed in a, a more stable environment that's it's all depending on the situation, right? But something has to be done because it is very likely that if you exhibit these behaviors that you're going to go on to commit, maybe not serial killings, but some kind of violent behavior. Neglect is the biggest problem other than actual physical assaults or emotional verbal abuse because when you're just, you feel like you're not, you're, you're invisible, you're completely neglected. You're completely alone. You have so much time to sit there and stew and think and really start building all these feelings of hatred and resentment, which then eventually, if it's not taken care of, if you don't get to talk about it, if you don't, if you're not able to resolve those feelings, you're going to act out in some way that's either going to hurt you or another person, or both. So if your children are displaying these behaviors, please, it doesn't mean that they're going to grow up to, to be another Jeffrey Dahmer, but just make sure that you get them help or have a discussion with them. If you feel like it's not something that you can discuss with them, they need to talk to someone. They need to talk to a, doc, a family doctor. They need to talk to a psychiatrist, a therapist, somebody that can specialize in these things, That somebody that knows what to do as a parent you do have limited abilities right you are not a professional 
you're not a professional, you're not a psychiatrist. So you are able to communicate with your children. Like I said, communication is very important, but you don't have the proper tools to deal with things like this on your own. You are always going to need outside help and you need to make sure that if you notice any of these behaviors that you nip it in the bud early and prevent it from getting out of control. Unfortunately, we do know for psychopathic children and adults, true psychopaths, there is no treatment or medication that will cure it. And unfortunately, most of those people end up being hospitalized for most of their life because they cannot exist out in the natural world with people without hurting them and manipulating them. And that is sad. So true psychopaths, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but they're kind of a lost cause. And I hope that there's more research being done. And maybe someday we will see that there's a way to reintroduce them into society and have them be normal functioning adults, but it's not very likely at all. So I hope that you don't ever have that diagnosis for your child because that's when it truly, I can't imagine having to just put my child in, in a institution and just leave them there. That's heartbreaking. So, um, there are two people I wanted to give some examples, right? Just to give you an idea of what their childhood was, was like. So Jeffrey Dahmer is the first one. Uh, he's one of the most well-known serial killers out there. And so basically, if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, I'll kind of just give you a little little taste here. Uh, I'm reading something from A&E, their true crime blog series. And here we go. It says, when two Milwaukee police officers were flagged down in the late night hours of July 22nd, 1991, by a man already in handcuffs claiming he'd narrowly escaped murder, they knew they were in for an unusual shift. But nothing could have prepared them for what awaited at the perpetrator's house, a second story apartment on North 25th Street, the home of 31 year old killer and cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. Inside, they discovered a grisly scene. Now, if you're squeamish, don't listen to this. I'm warning you right now. Don't listen. Don't listen. If you are okay with it, keep listening. But if you're going to get grossed out, walk away for the next five minutes or so. Um, so they found this in his apartment. Seven skulls, four decapitated heads in a refrigerator. Photographs of murder victims in various states of dismemberment and a 57 gallon and a 57 gallon barrel containing multiple headless torsos and other body parts decomposing with the assistance of corrosive chemicals. He had this in his apartment, like, and nobody knew. That's insane. Nobody had any clue. He was bleaching flesh off the bone. And here's the kicker, right? Just like he learned as a young child from his dad. Now, for some reason, I always, it's weird. I I could have sworn that I read that he had a completely normal childhood, that he was totally normal, and he just ended up this way just it just happened right like he was a psychopath and it just happened no matter what like no matter how much he was loved but now I'm finding that he was exposed to some weird shit that obviously messed him up and enough to have all these body parts uh and decapitated heads in his refrigerator so a forensic psychiatrist 
that interviewed and evaluated Dahmer and served as an expert witness in his trial said these things, okay? He and his dad, as a father-son activity, bleached the connective tissue and the hair off rodents' corpses when they found animals who died under their house. Eventually, only a pail full of bones would remain. And he says it was like a personalized rattle. The family would call them his fiddlesticks. So he played with these bones, these bleach bones from these animals that were dead under the house. Uh, At the time, the unusual hobby wasn't about a love for gore. It was practiced out of an interest in science, apparently. Okay. Dahmer's father was a research chemist. The bone bleaching was an extension of professional expertise. But that, I'm sorry, that's kind of a weird thing for your kid to experience. Anyway. After his arrest, Jeffrey Dahmer confessed to 17 murders of which he was convicted for 16, admitting to authorities that he ate his victim's organs and had sex with their corpses. What a nice guy. Killers like Dahmer don't just emerge fully formed from one day to the next. They grow up and into their murderous roles. So it says Dahmer's childhood was not without problems. His mother suffered from depression and attempted suicide. His father preoccupied with his work was largely absent david dahmer his brother came along when jeffrey was five and throughout childhood jeffrey resented him as a competitor for their parents scant attention the little attention that he was getting between the time jeffrey was six and eight his family moved a lot before finally settling in bath ohio where he lived until he graduated from high school over those early years his parents fought all the time And then their relationship ended in a messy divorce. And there were all kinds of allegations being thrown around about extreme cruelty and gross neglect of duty. According to Louis Schlesinger, a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and an expert on serial sexual murder, none of that information correlates to Dahmer's killing spree. He says lots of people have conflicts with their brothers and sisters And having your mother attempt suicide and become hospitalized is not a pleasant event, but it doesn't make you become a serial killer. That being said, he acknowledges there are childhood and adolescent behaviors that do correlate with the development of serial sexual murder, starting with a preoccupying sadistic fantasy and a compulsion to act on it. When you do something like Dahmer did, you don't just one day do it. It begins in the mind. This is why it's important to get help early. It doesn't mean it's going to prevent it, but you got a shot. Wallstrom says that as an early adolescent, Dahmer had an off-the-charts libido and constant fantasies about doing harm, more specifically killing men and having sex with their corpses. It took up about two-thirds of his day, Wallstrom says Dahmer told him. At age 13, Dahmer tried to actualize what was in his imagination. He'd become uh, overcome with lust for a male jogger in his hometown of Bath, Ohio. And so one day he hid with a baseball bat near the joggers route, hoping to make his first kill. But Dahmer told Wallstrom the man didn't go jogging that day. So he moved on. Lucky guy. He was a very disturbed kid and adolescent. Obviously, he was very isolated from people around him. Another strong correlate to sex, serial sexual murder is animal cruelty, like with the McDonald triad. That's clear in his case. Schlesinger says that um, as a teenager, Dahmer had impaled a dog's head on a stick in the forest behind his house. The most striking anecdote Dahmer shared about 
animal cruelty dates from grade school. He'd gotten a tadpole and took it into his teacher. The teacher ended up giving it away to another kid. So Dahmer was pissed off about that, right? So he went to the student's house, found the tadpole, and then he decided he was going to pour gasoline on it and set it on fire. Wallstrom says Dahmer said to him, if you want to call that torturing animals, I tortured animals. But while animal cruelty is often a component of serial sexual murder, the strongest correlate is the murderer himself having been a victim of childhood abuse. So Dahmer, he emphatically denied that. He said that he was not a victim of childhood abuse. He said he had very loving parents and that blaming his parents for his issues was completely off the mark. But he also interviewed, Wallstrom interviewed Dahmer's friends and family members for Jeffrey Dahmer's killer, for his, sorry, for his psychiatric evaluation, which he provided to the defense. Uh, he said he didn't hear or observe anything to contradict the claim of a relatively peaceful family home. Although his mother suffered with mental health issues, Wallstrom says he thinks she was a loving mother. She had the, he says she had the one year baby book with locks of his hair and lots of pictures. And his parents seemed in the broad range of normal. Now it may be true that his mother loved him. It may be true that his dad loved him. However, them being having, having mental health issues when kids are exposed to that, that can damage them. Parents being absent definitely can do some damage. It can make them feel isolated. It can make them feel unloved. Kids need love, especially in the first three years of their life. Always they need it. But when they're developing, they definitely need that stability, that nurturing. They need to be told their love. They need to be looked after and when they get hurt they need someone to respond when they're sick you need to respond you cannot just ignore your child it damages them sometimes beyond repair and leads to these behaviors and then they grow up to inflict pain and torture and and on other people and murder them and cannibalize them this is horrible we all know about jeffrey dahmer most of us, but it's important to note that even though we don't know everything about his family, there was obviously dysfunction, but even though it wasn't extreme, like in some other examples where there's like prostitution and drug abuse and things like that, like in the case of Charles Manson, still there are things like his mother attempting suicide definitely impacted him. His dad not being around definitely impacted him. Um, feeling like he wasn't getting enough attention when his brother came along when he already felt like he wasn't getting attention that definitely it can it can mess a person up so I don't know that there had to be something else going on right obviously there was mental illness that wasn't related to his environment he some people are born with these things then you have the case of Ted Bundy so Ted Bundy did have a troubled childhood. Uh, he didn't know who his dad was. And there was a rumor that claimed that it was his own grandfather through incest. So that alone right there 
that's <laughs> that's enough to kind of fuck somebody up pretty bad. Um, so any developmental psychologist will tell you that your current lifestyle is a byproduct of the kind of childhood that you had, right? Because actions are born from experience, both positive and um, less than positive, right? They can both lead to destruction. Now, while most people can have bad things happen to them in their childhood and then go on to become a productive adult, there are some people that aren't that lucky and then there are people that don't seem to care. They lack any form of empathy. They they have no emotions. They're blank, right? Like an example is this a psychopath, a sociopath. So with child with with Ted Bunny's childhood, just in, as an example, for the entirety of his childhood, he was unaware that his sister was actually his mother. His maternal grandfather uh, who at first raised him was racist, misogynistic, and just totally abusive. And he spent his adolescence across the country, removed from everything he had known as a child, raised by a stepfather that he felt no connection to whatsoever. So completely isolated. But then there's the question, was all of that really enough to drag him into who he became? Right? This violent murderer. Or was there other were there other things going on? So what I'm reading here, it says Ted Bundy's childhood of lies, right? Murderous adulthood aside, it's important to note that Ted Bundy did not start life with the upper hand. In fact, it was a shock that he started life at all. On November 24th, 1946, a 22-year-old girl gave birth at a center for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Her name was Eleanor Louise Cowell, and she had no idea that the child she had just given birth to would one day become an infamous monster, Ted Bundy. The issue of Bundy's paternity would be debated for most of his life without clarification. By some accounts, his birth certificate read unknown in place of his father's names, but by others, an Air Force veteran or a sailor could have been his true father. In a case of truly horrifying irony, it is also said that Bundy, who would later become known for his sexual violence, was the product of his own grandfather and his mother. According to Anne Rule in her book, The Stranger Beside Me, Samuel Cowell may have raped his daughter, Louise Cowell, to produce Bundy. However, this has never been corroborated through DNA evidence. Regardless, in order to avoid the stigma of raising a bastard child with no father, Cowell returned home to her parents' house in Philadelphia and surrendered her child to them. For at least the first three years of his life, Tabundi grew up believing that his mother was his, was his sister and his grandparents were his true mother and father. And by some accounts, Bundy did not learn his true parentage until 1969, not too long before his killing spree began. According to Cal, Ted Bundy's childhood with her parents was definitely no picnic um bundy however felt differently while cal noted that her father samuel was abusive sexist and more than a little bit racist bundy would recall admiring and respecting him believing him to be a prime example of a man and the head of the household so this is what bundy thought a man should be he didn't know any better so of course he's going to repeat this behavior this is this is what he believes a man to be not loving, not sensitive, 
very abusive, sexist, probably hated women. Um, and then he later described to biographer Ann Rule how he clung to his grandfather and identified with and respected him. So this is the man that he idolized. Psychiatrist Dr. Dorothy Ottenow Lewis, who examined Bundy during his trial in a last minute attempt to save him from execution, claimed that there were signs in Ted Bundy's childhood that pointed toward his psychotic adulthood. Um, she interviewed his family members and heard from a cousin that a preschool age Bundy would often sneak away into the greenhouse where his grandfather kept his porno collection. He read the magazines for hours on end and later would admit that it was pornography that fueled his violent fantasies. I want to just point out that pornography alone is not something that you should be concerned about. Lots of kids, especially boys, are going to be curious. And if you find that your child has any magazines or has been looking at pornographic websites, don't automatically go, oh, my God, this is the next Ted Bundy. Obviously, there was an accumulation of events and abuse and all kinds of things that led to him being the the monster that he he was. Don't just think that because your kid's looking at porn that he, they're going to be like him. I just want to point that out. Um, Bundy's maternal aunt also revealed she awoke several times in early, early years to find young Bundy slipping butcher knives underneath her sheets and giggling. What a great way to wake up. Oh, my gosh. Aunt Mal surmised from these facts that Bundy's grandmother, who had been prone to fits of depression and was often hospitalized for electronic... Oh, electromagnetic shock therapy. Ooh, shock therapy. Um, that sh this had some hand in his mental health. Obviously, that affected him. Her afflictions included depression, agoraphobia, and more likely indicated that Bundy had a predisposition to mental health problems on a biological level. So this was, you know, you've got nature versus nurture, right? So nature, so he was born with, some kind of some level of chemical imbalance and then you have um his environment nurture right which was not nurturing obviously but he believed it was he believed his grandfather was a great man and it just so many things went wrong i don't know if he could have been saved in short nothing in his childhood set him up for normal adulthood um, and then his mother. So as Louise Cow's family and friends in Philly became increasingly, increasingly concerned about the well-being of her and her son, she eventually decided that the only way to protect him from her father was to leave. And so in 1949, Cowell moved with her son to Tacoma, Washington, to live with a cousin of hers. While in Tacoma, Cal met and fell in love with Johnny Bundy, a local hospital cook. And to her delight, Johnny Bundy was the opposite of Cowell a doting, loving man who welcomed the young unwed mother and her son into his life. After marrying, Johnny even went so far as to formally adopt Ted, officially making him Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, on the other hand, was not as open to the new man in his life. Throughout his time in Tacoma, he refused to bond with his stepfather. Even when Cal and her new husband had more children, Bundy continued to withdraw from the family and refused to partake in any events, family events such as fishing and camping. And so their refusal to mesh with his new family points to a lack of social skills and the beginnings of a severe mental health issue. It wasn't until later that Ted Bundy's childhood in Tacoma was plagued by a bipolar mood disorder, a manic depressive disorder that can produce random and sometimes violent mood swings. 
There were other psychologists and investigators, right, that worked on Bundy's case. They reported that he displayed signs of a mood disorder. At one point during his trial, an investigator reported a strange mood coming over Bundy that lasted for only 20 minutes but changed the man's entire disposition. At the end of it, he seemed to have no recollection or recognition that anything was amiss and continued on as usual. That sounds like a blackout, right? Uh, indeed, it seemed clear toward the end of his life that something more than evil was lurking behind his eyes. It was Ted Bundy's childhood trauma really a rationalization for his crimes. Um, plenty of people have had horrible childhoods, and they grow up to leave perfectly normal lives, not without incident usually, but they usually don't grow up to be killers. This is not like something that happens every day. Not everyone that has trauma during their childhood becomes a serial killer. Just just keep that in mind. What could have changed in Bundy? So his childhood may have been filled with troubles, but then during his teenage years, true deviances began to show. By his late teens, he was caught peeping through windows and shoplifting. Around the same time, he fell in love with a young woman who didn't return his advances. So when people feel rejected, a lot of times guys feel rejected by girls and they already have issues. Uh, It doesn't sit well with them, right? So he became reclusive, bitter, and then he wanted revenge. So he got involved with a political campaign of who would be lieutenant governor of Washington State, which unfortunately wasn't successful. So that's another... uh, unsuccessful thing in his life on the heels of his failed political career he attempted once again to redeem himself by pursuing a law degree at philadelphia's temple university and then he dropped out before he received his degree at some point in his early or late adolescence bundy found out his parentage when he discovered his birth certificate So the fact that he was never quite able to exact revenge on his first love and his anger and frustration over his childhood stayed with him throughout his life and is believed, it's believed that it in part fueled his crimes. So from 1974 to, or 1973 to 1978, he's believed to have raped, tortured, and killed 30 women, crimes to which he openly confessed and for which he was sentenced to death. He had a girlfriend at the time, who first brought him to the police's attention. Not that his time on death row stopped Bunny from living. He married an ex-co-worker named Carol Ann Boone, with whom he had a child named Rose Bundy, not long before he was ultimately executed by electric chair. Uh, Since his arrest in 1978, the issue of whether or not Ted Bundy's childhood had significant bearing on his adulthood has been called into question. Various psychologists believe that Ted Bundy was not born a killer, but made one by early childhood circumstances that he had to endure. But other people believed he was genetically predisposed to mental illness and therefore could have very likely been born a killer. He could have simply waited until adulthood to act on the feelings that were always deep inside of him. No matter which theory is true, we might not ever know. But one thing is certain. He was indeed one of the worst criminals the country has ever seen, the U.S., but how much of his actions could be blamed on his past? And then even if we could know for certain how Ted Bundy's childhood instigated his crimes, is there any way it could ever justify what he did? Like I said, lots of people go through horrific things. Some even worse than what he went through. Uh, I, I know it's all relative. Everybody's trauma is significant. And you shouldn't discount that. 
But there are people that have been through far worse than Ted Bundy that had ended up normal. Not when I say normal, I mean, they didn't go on to become serial killers. Now, obviously, they probably had to have lots of therapy and probably are not 100 percent OK. Obviously, there are some people that experience less than he did that probably are worse than him. So it's all it's not all about your environment. Some people are born that way. And sometimes there are people that are born killers that they had an excellent childhood, but there was no hope from them from birth because their brain, their chemistry, it was just not right. And so no matter how much love they received, no matter how much attention they got, it wasn't going to save them. And to me, that's worse. That's truly sad because there's just no hope. No matter how much love you show them, no matter how many times you hug them and say, I love you, it's just not going to do anything. They don't care. They lack empathy. They don't have any emotions. And it's falling on deaf ears. Anyway, I don't know if that was interesting to you at all, but uh, it's always something that's interested me. And I don't want this. I'm not worried about my child being a serial killer by any means. But I just want you to be aware of behaviors that could lead to violent behavior later on in life. Make sure that you nurture your children, love them, um, let them know that they're loved. You don't have to say I love you every five minutes, but take some time out of your day every day to say I love you and to give them a hug. Pay attention to them. If they're going through something, notice, let them know, keep lines of communication open that's most important. Communication is key with any relationship with your husband, your child, your parents, your family member, your anybody, anyone important in your life. You have to be able to communicate. If you have trouble, find ways, find ways to communicate, whether it's try, try, try again until you get it right. Seek therapy, do something, but you have to maintain that line of communication and just support always let them know that they can come to you for anything and that you're not going to judge them that you will listen and if it's not something you can help them with you will get them the help that they need so anyway two completely different topics but i thought both were important i thought both were interesting i thought you might like to hear about it both of them so hopefully you learned something and hopefully I didn't gross anybody out, but I did warn you about Jeffrey Dahmer. So if you kept listening and it bothered you, that is not my fault. So anyway, I hope that the rest of your day is awesome. And that's my time. And I will be around next weekend. I will get this done on Saturday, barring any complications. I'm hoping everything goes smoothly this week and next weekend. But I will be around at some point, no matter what. So everybody take care and you will be hearing from me again soon. Thanks for your time.